1: To Bloomberg Opinion, I'm Vani Quinn. This week...
2: The key concern usually is precisely when a yield curve re-steepens rapidly to get back to zero. That's when you're about to get a recession. Not when you know that one is coming, but when it's actually here.
1: Chief rates correspondent Garfield Reynolds on the signals rates are sending investors about the economy. And
3: it's kind of like a wee work, right? It's kind of like fake it till you make it.
1: Shuli Ren on the latest Adani concerns shaking the integrity of India investment. We'll also hear from the University of Georgia's Stephen Mim about the curious history of meat alternatives. First, though, two chief rates correspondent now, Garfield Reynolds, and the market's topsy turvy week. Here's Fed Chair Jay Powell at the Economic Club of Washington, D.C.
4: The message we were sending at the FOMC meeting last Wednesday was really that um, the disinflationary process, the process of getting inflation down, has begun. And it's begun in the goods sector, which is about a quarter of our economy. But it has a long way to go. These are the very early stages of disinflation. So the services sector really, except for housing services, pardon me, uh, is not really showing any, any disinflation.
1: So Garfield, Powell had another opportunity this week to speak to the markets and it felt like he didn't take any opportunity to correct the market or maybe deflect the market. He just said exactly what he has been saying. He's not making any effort anymore, is he, to talk down the market?
2: Well, I think he is very conscious of the idea that he's got a very narrow path forward towards the situation where he gets inflation down without crashing the economy. And so he doesn't want to scare people too much is the way it comes across. And he's sort of willing to, as it were, talk past markets and just stick with, this is what I see we need to do. How many times can he say he's determined to bring inflation down and that he doesn't want to repeat the mistakes of the 1980s? He said that that's part of the furniture. And he's also, I mean, the method this week has been to let the other Fed officials yes. be the ones who really sing the hawkish chorus.
1: It's amazing. His deputies do all of that work these days and not him so much.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's great right that we get a lot of Fed speak and that also the market is paying a lot of attention to it. The other factor here is that, you know, after all, the FOMC, that is a committee, there is a range of views, and so quite possibly Powell himself is somewhat less hawkish, somewhat more optimistic about potential to get a soft landing you know, than some of his colleagues who are, you know, for whatever particular reasons, whether it comes to background or whether it comes to their particular you know, region that they're looking at, they're far more concerned about just making absolutely sure that inflation is brought into check. They're far more willing yeah, to take the punch bowl away.
1: Well, as we speak, the ten-year yield is at three sixty-five and change. The two-year is at four forty-eight. So we have, I mean, repriced a certain amount, but there's no wholesale repricing going on still. Why is that? Do you think?
2: Well, there's a couple of issues going on. I mean, one is, as we're mentioning, the pal, is aiming very determinedly for a soft landing. And so a soft landing is seen as, you know, allowing for interest rates to not get too high and to come down, you know, sooner rather than later if they need to. But the other issue is there's just an enormous appetite. U.S. Treasuries now. Some of that demand has come from pensions who define benefit pensions in the U.S. have got about a trillion dollars to play with. That's surplus. And so they don't, need to do anything other than just earn income on it so they're happy to buy treasuries we saw very very strong demand of the 10-year auction this week there is that undercurrent of demand for treasuries at these yields from long-term buyers at the same time at the very short end we have people betting on the potential that the Fed takes the interest rate to 6% and certainly the terminal rate pricing the general consensus that's moved up as well So you're seeing a market that is saying we're going to hedge against the potential that the Fed goes harder in the longer term. We're confident that a 3.5% to 4% yield on a 10-year Treasury is too good to miss out. Mm -hmm. We don't see that over the long term, yields are going to move significantly higher and stay significantly higher for any long stretch of time.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's phenomenal. It's very hard to believe that that will actually happen when you see what the market is doing these days. But I guess it has to happen at some point. Now, you mentioned it there. There has been lots of chatter and lots of options market movement pricing in a peak rate of 6% or even higher. Should we be seeing these types of tail risks priced in elsewhere, though?
2: Well, I mean, definitely, because uh, the concern has to be, if you look a little bit further away from just the Treasury market itself, what's the impact if the Fed goes to 55 or 6% or beyond on the wider world outside Treasuries? What happens to tech stocks that have been very, very strong, and in particular on valuations to earnings basis? Exactly. What happens to the credit complex, where corporate spreads have come in markedly and have continued to march in, even as what's really gone on with government yields is they've sort of stabilized in their current range. So if the Fed goes to 5.25, 5.5, 5.75, in the longer term, somebody who bought a 10-year yield at this level might well decide that they're going to be okay, they just need to ride out the short-term pain, but those other markets, they don't have that luxury. Mm. And I haven't even mentioned what would go on with junk bonds.
1: Yeah, it's phenomenal when you think about it. I mean, what should be happening now in order to prepare for a world that's like that? Or do all of these other markets assume one of two options, that everything is smooth and fine and hunky-dory and there's plenty of demand for all of the products made by these tech companies, or there's going to be a massive recession?
2: Yeah, yeah. And uh, and the I, I mean, the question with the massive recession, too, is mostly down to what goes on with inflation and what goes on with the Fed's fight against inflation. And if inflation continues to come down smoothly and at a fairly rapid pace, then even if you don't get the Fed rate cuts later on in the year that people are looking for, I think you'll get a soft landing for the economy. You might get some pain for those people who bought 10-year bonds at 3.5%, but that won't really hurt the wider world. The big risk is if you get inflation staying elevated, or if you get something in the way that inflation is coming down that still concerns the Fed, the Fed goes higher than people are expecting it and stays there for longer, that could cause, you know, that recession that we're talking about.
1: So the other part of this, and the Fed chair mentioned it, has mentioned it a few times now, is services inflation, and that's the, the stickier side of things, and it also accounts for you know, more of the bucket than goods inflation. It's not coming down. How on earth could we possibly get a rate cut by the end of the year? Game out the scenario where we do get one.
2: Well, that's always been one of the conundrums, because if you do get a... You know, equities have been rallying on the idea that the Fed is soon done with rates, best we can tell. Um, there are some other issues as well, but that's certainly been part of the narrative. You know, the Fed will soon be done hiking, and it will be ready to cut at the first sign of trouble, the way that Powell did before the pandemic, sort of 2018, 2019, when they raised rates and said that they were determined to keep raising them. But then once the economy wobbled, Well, they cut them again. Mm. So there's an expectation they would do that again. The difficulty is inflation is still way too high for the Fed to countenance rate cuts. So if you're going to get rate cuts later this year, even from where we are now, if the Fed stops where it is now and then ends up cutting rates by the end of this year, that has to be a recession in order for them to do that because the the inflation rate is just too high.
1: Yeah, I mean, Stephen Major has always had this idea of why would the Fed overhike in order to have to cut again. Why wouldn't it just hike enough and stay there for a while and then cut eventually sometime, maybe? So I'm not sure why that isn't more popular of a view.
2: Well, I think the point there is that central banks do tend to overreact. They definitely overreacted to the pandemic and also to previous episodes of recession. So they take rates you know, lower and do more than than might actually have been wise. And then you end up you know, overcharging the economy as it comes back up out of recession. And, mm. so that, and now there's the concern that they will overdo it in that way, you know, in the opposite way. They will keep rates too high for too long because of their worries about inflation.
1: Garfield, where in the market are you looking for signs or clues or some kind of inkling as to what direction sentiment might be taking?
2: I think the credit space is is very much an area that is of interest there. You know, that's a little bit slower twitch, so to speak, mm. than, uh, than the equities markets, which can flip up and down far, far more readily. So what's going on there, you know, if you do start to see signs that spreads, are widening back out, I think that would be a very concerning sign that would be coming. And if spreads there can stay where they are, again, that would also be you know potentially welcome. I also think that you know a major concern would be if we got a sudden re-steepening of the yield curve. We've got an inverted yield curve, it's just lasted longer, this current inversion, than the 2000-era inversion, sorry, than the 2007-era inversion, which presaged the, um, the global financial crisis. So, and it's very unusual to have an inversion this long without that to be a recession at the end of it. The key concern usually is precisely when a yield curve re-steepens rapidly to get back to zero, that's when you're about to get a recession, not when you know that one is coming, but when it's actually here. So if we see a rapid repricing where 10-year yields come up fast and two-year yields don't, or two-year yields come down and 10-year yields don't, so we get that re-steepening back towards zero, that's when you might actually get some brief rallies in equities and credit you know, on on hopes that we're getting an end to the Fed's hiking cycle. But that's actually usually when the recession is just going to hit. So that would be a very dangerous time indeed.
1: Bloomberg Chief Rates correspondent Garfield Reynolds. Next, Shuli Ren on the latest in India's Adani crisis. This is Bloomberg Opinion.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. Now to go to Madani, one of India's biggest industrial tycoons. Since short-seller Hindenburg Research published its report alleging market manipulation and fraud on the part of Adani Enterprises, market repercussions have been picking up speed, with a flurry of supportive activity from India's billionaires, less supportive activity from bondholders, credit rating agencies and index providers, and not much of any support at all from India's government. In fact, Parliament was suspended for five days after pandemonium broke out, The opposition wanting to debate the crisis, the legislature wanting not to. I caught up with Bloomberg Opinion's Shuli Wren on what comes next and what Adani can do to stave off a wholesale crisis. So Shuli, let's get the update on Adani. We know that things deteriorated for several sessions. Are things stabilizing now?
3: A little bit, especially Adani dollar bank. Adani Group has just slightly shy of a billion dollar bonds outstanding, and starting from late last week, what we saw was that credit hedge funds and distressed special situations funds were scooping in to buy on dip.
1: Now, why is Adani and the various bonds that they can buy associated with the various companies attractive for distressed investors and not, you know, regular debt or equity investors?
3: Well, they are so-called special situations funds in that they see those big corporate events and they try to profit from that. What a lot of credit hedge funds saw was that Adani Group does have good assets, especially Adani Ports. And they feel that, you know, even if there are jitters at the headquarter, at the holding company, with this kind of subsidiaries, they are backed by good assets. That's why those credit funds are buying. Also, at this point, these funds are yielding at the over 10%. <laughs> What kind of a signal does this send in terms
1: of confidence?
3: I think... more a shift of hands in the investor base. I mean, before the, the whole Hindenburg short seller report, Adani bonds, most of them were actually, believe it or not, investment grade, and they were they were only offering like 3 to 5% coupon rates. And with the short seller report out, all the allegations of corporate governance, insider trading, a lot of leech long only funds were selling, and instead, those uh, high yield, more speculative, more risk taking hedge funds are coming. So I think. It's a change in investor base for Adani at this point.
1: Can we read anything about whether it means that there is more confidence in Adani's survival or his
3: thriving, let's say, or less confidence? I think rather than speaking of confidence, it's it's more the kind of cost of borrowing that capital markets now demanding for Adani before because of its green energy ambition etc. And its pushed to help India fast track into the next generation, South Korea. Global funds were willing to lend money to Adani at a very, very cheap rate. And these days, no longer. They are treated more like a high-risk bet.
1: Now, Oak Tree, Davidson Kempner, some names we know well have been buying up some debt. Explain to us why they're comfortable buying up Adani debt
3: they are very experienced. I mean, Oaktree has been in, both funds, have been in China Evergrande Group and China's other conglomerates, such as Unigroup before, right? So they are, compared to Blue Chip, long-only credit funds, way more experienced with emerging markets conglomerates and their cross shareholdings and all sorts of shenanigans. So they feel very comfortable going to this.
1: Do they tend to stay for the long haul or what happened when it came to China Evergrande Group?
3: They can be in for the quite a long haul, and they are quite tenacious. I mean, Oak Tree famously gave a loan to China Evergrande Group, and then when the developer defaulted on that loan, they basically <laughs> seized a big plot of land in in Hong Kong last year, and they sold it, and they recouped all their loans plus interest. So they can be quite tenacious, hard-nosed, and demanding.
1: Now, you actually write that Adani needs to take a leaf out of Softbank and Fosun's playbooks. Explain what you mean by that, Julie.
3: So right now, I think there is a lot of market uncertainty around Adani's ability to tap on to the different financing channels. Like Adani, just like Fusion and SoftBank, they have very diversified funding channels. With Adani, over 15% came from global banks and another 7-8% uh, coming from the dollar bond market. And I think what they need to do is try to sell some assets because they should change the narrative from a liquidity crunch to credit analysts saying wait a minute adani has very good assets and they do they have a lot of top tier ports in india for instance right so if they can show that their assets are worth quite a lot of money in the marketplace the credit analyst narratives couldn't change and another thing they could do and that's being done with a lot of asia's biggest conglomerates is that they try to buy back some bonds just like what people do with stocks, right? Just to boost the market confidence. Because once you buy, buy some bonds, the bond market will be open. And there's a lot of money in that.
1: Now, Adani has been prepaying some payments, right? What is
3: he doing there? How is that working? So it is a sign that global banks are having cold feet. I mean, the so-called prepayments really was basing margin costs from global banks like Citigroup, Deutsche Bank, J.P. Morgan, and they've been a little bit nervous. So that's a big problem for Adani because over 15% of their total financing came from global banks.
1: Local banks also financed, obviously. You suggest mm-hmm. that perhaps Adani can convince local banks to lend more, maybe take the place of some of those foreign banks.
3: Well, that has to be the case if they want to continue growing at that pace. I mean, with the China's distressed conglomerates case, domestic banks have come in, like in the case of Fusheng, for instance. It's a huge uh, private equity operator. And what happened was when the dollar bond funding channels were being closed, uh, domestic banks, they were giving out the syndicated loans to Fusion, And that's, that's what happened in the China space. So what we want to see is if India's, their own banks are willing to step in, in place of global banks.
1: Does Adani end up smaller after this no matter what now?
3: Oh, I think it has to. And I apologize for using this kind of extreme example. It's kind of like we work, right? (laughs) Um, It's kind of like fake it till you make it. And what happens is that as soon as Adani, and they have said that Adani ports, for instance, they're going to have their capital expenditure spending. So as soon as you scale back your ambition, that also means that your stock valuation would not be as high as before because before, investors were buying into a growth option. They were buying to a core option. And now people see that the core doesn't have much value. So Adani stocks will be just treated like any normal core operator or, you know, energy operator.
1: We did see some credit ratings
3: downgrades, but not on everything, Shuli. Will there be more coming? I think, I mean, so far, like there is not much, right? But the credit rating agencies, they are very, very careful and they must be watching this very carefully because there is reputation risk at stake for them as well, especially if Adani bonds are trading at the 50 cents on the dollar. And if you say, oh, you know, your investment grade, that's not a good look for the ratings agencies. And I think Adani has to be very, very careful to keep, its investment-grade rating. I mean, with Adani Ports, for instance, they said they're going to lower the leverage ratios, which ratings agencies like Moody's and S&P look at.
1: All of that doesn't actually address some of the other concerns in the Hindenburg report, such as these entities based in Mauritius, for example. Will any of that get addressed?
3: On the stock manipulation side, it's very hard to prove definitively if Adani insiders are manipulating the stocks. I mean, the Hindenburg report, a lot of it is consensual, right? For instance, if you have a $2 billion so-called India Opportunities Fund, and 99% of that $2 billion is invested in a few Adani stocks, it is a little bit sketchy. I mean, are you saying that India has no other opportunities other than the few Adani stocks? Having said that, how do you prove definitively that that money actually came from the Adani fund? I think it's going to be very hard to prove. Bloomberg Opinions,
1: Shuli Ren. Stay tuned, next on Bloomberg Opinion. It's
3: one thing if you
4: get to have access to protein and meat and your alternative is no protein, like the 1700s. And in that case, the Americans are better off. At this point, you'd be hard-pressed to argue that consuming 264 pounds of meat per person per year is inherently a healthy thing, It's especially given the alternatives.
1: The University of Georgia history professor and Bloomberg Opinion columnist Stephen Mim. This is Bloomberg Opinion.
0: OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com
1: slash TechSF. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vonnie Quinn. Alternative meats are now firmly out of fashion. Beyond Meat is down 74% year over year, even having had a 32% rally so far this year. Kellogg just announced it's pulling its plan to look at selling its plant-based division, which includes the meat substitute, Incognito, and that thanks to plummeting valuations. It turns out this happens once in a while, going all the way back to the colonial era. I spoke with the University of Georgia history professor and Bloomberg opinion columnist Stephen Mim. So, Stephen, in the colonial era, according to your research, Americans ate, what, an average of 200 pounds of meat a year. And now we're at 264 pounds of meat a year on average, which is quite surprising. But in the interim, there has been a lot of variation. So just explain to us why on earth, going back to the colonial era, Americans had that kind of meat and were able to eat as much as 200 pounds of meat a year on average.
4: Right. Well, at least after they got through the initial starvation period, it, Yes. it, it yes. took a little while. But absolutely. So the colonial era is pretty unusual in that Americans living in these rural places on farms were astonishingly well-fed relative to basically almost all the rest of the world. So that whenever Europeans would come, they were struck by the fact that they were eating meat three times a day. You know, by contrast, at the time, it was like two or three times a week in Europe.
1: At this point, it was because they were living on farms and they were able to raise animals. But wouldn't that have been the case in Europe, too?
4: It was. But the one thing about the colonists is that the kind of fertility of the land and the productivity of it relative to Europe, which had been farmed for millennia, was much higher. And there was a lot more space to have grazing animals so you could have a much easier time of it raising livestock. As it turns out, eating livestock. So uh, mm. Americans were really kind of noteworthy in that way. Very well fit. I mean, unusually so.
1: Well, at some point, though, eating meat became associated with negative connotations. What happened?
4: Even though initially the vegetarian movement about 200 years ago was pretty fringy, as we would say today, there were people who concluded, and Sylvester Graham, the inventor of what is now called the Graham Cracker, was among these dietary kind of thinkers who came to the conclusion that eating meat was bad, in part because they believed that it excited your passions and made you basically engage in illicit sexual behavior wow. like an animal. Um, that was the jump in logic. They also pointed out, by the way, that the Garden of Eden, there's no mention of Adam and Eve eating any meat. So they sort of realized, like, Well, except for right. the
1: rib, no? <laughs>
4: <It> <laughs> that was... is true.
1: I guess she didn't eat it, he just gave it to her? Yeah, there was
4: it yeah, didn't eat it, just God used it. So um <laughs> so that's right. Now and,
1: was this purely ideological or did this Mr. Graham also have sort of a secondary reason for this if he was the inventor of the Graham Cracker after all?
4: He did. So he had this belief that there were all sorts of foods that were bad for you. And he was kind of right in certain ways. He was like refined carbohydrates are bad for you. <sighs> Turns out, like he was like the Atkins diet. So he had these ideas that it was not only, you know, would excite your passions, it was also bad for you and could cause all sorts of other health problems.
1: I suppose there are those who would say that today. And that's why we did have this explosion once again, fairly recently of all of these meat substitutes.
4: That's right. And so this has been a long, recurrent theme, trying to swear off meat, which is like the American tradition of consuming way too much of it, arguably, and then flirting with these ideas about abstaining from it and then somehow or another falling off the wagon and getting back on the meat train, whatever you want to call it.
1: Kellogg was even involved in this.
4: That's right. So he's even more influential. So Sylvester Graham's successor in the vegetarian movement was James Harvey Kellogg, who is the man behind cornflakes that was devised as a meat alternative for breakfast. <laughs> but he's noteworthy and he's kind of cool in that he went way farther and that he wasn't just counseling being a vegetarian, he was counseling eating fake meats. That so he's really the one who pioneers these new products. One's called Nuttose, which is made of like nuts. Proto's which also had nuts and a lot of grains. And they claim to be indistinguishable from actual meat, which, of course, they weren't. But that's the same claims that have been made about meat substitutes from that point forward.
1: I wonder if you had Proto's today, if it would taste very different to something like the Impossible Burger or the Beyond Burger.
4: Absolutely. I, I've kind of wondered that. And there's a man, Adam Shrinson, I believe is his name, who's written this history of vegetarianism. And he actually tried to recreate based on the recipe. And he said it was okay, you know, but in a way that these meat substitutes are often okay, especially if they're kind of soaked in other flavorings, you know. And Well, that's kind the of a
1: thing, board. and that's sort of why they go out of fashion and perhaps why they've gone out of fashion at the moment, right? Exactly. Because there is a lot of extra additives.
4: Absolutely, and there's a question here in some cases whether is this actually a healthy alternative? Put aside the ethical dimensions of the question, is it actually a healthier alternative than, say, eating organic grass-fed beef? And the jury's sort of out on that, you know in terms of their contents.
1: It turns out that, in fact, vegetarianism is still a very small portion of the population.
4: Much smaller than you would think. You know, even more important, the needle really hasn't moved on it much over the last 20 years. It's still, at the very most, 10% of the population. And that's not as much even as I would have expected.
1: Tell us how the meatpacking industry went about it because they're not known for their soft diplomacy, let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs)
4: No, they're not. And every industry has its trade groups. And in the United States in the 20th century, that trade group was the AMI, or American Meat Institute. I've even seen pamphlets where it's like, meat recipes you will write home about, you know, (laughs) issued by the American Meat Institute. (laughs) Like, not chicken, just meat, (laughs) just meat. (laughs) Uh, And yes, so in various periods of the 20th century, you'd have scientists say, look, we think we can make a meat substitute from yeast or soy or what have you. And the meat, Institute would come out of the woodwork and, you know, brand this as quackery and also appealing, obviously, in the United States to Americans. Long standing tradition of eating meat and lots of it.
1: Stephen, what happened for the conclusion that meat somehow excited passions for that when, combination to yeah. go away?
4: Well, it continued actually well into the 20th century. A man named Bernard McFadden, who was a arguably like the one of the nation's first kind of fitness and health gurus, also believed this. Uh, he also believed that ketchup would have the same effect. Um, so, um, I mean, maybe
1: it does. Has anyone disproved this?
4: <laughs> exactly. That's a very good point. I think and this has never been subjected to scientific studies, so you don't know. But for these guys, you know, fake meat was like a culinary equivalent of a cold shower, you know, as a way of blunting your excessive passion. That did, though, fade away into the post-war era, and when vegetarian resumed its popularity in the 1970s, it was wrapped around actually an interesting kind of consequence, which was a fear of overpopulation and what that would mean for the ability of the planet to feed itself mm-hmm. with vegetarians and meat substitutes, all being the only answer. But that, too, sputtered and died out. It didn't help. Soylent Green, this dystopian thriller released in the... 1970s, depicted a world people subsisting on meat substitutes in the the end of the film, and people should plug their ears if they want to see it. because I'm about to spoil the ending. It turns out it's made from human beings. And so that probably put people off fake meats for another generation.
1: It does seem, though, that this arc of meat popularity, let's call it, had nothing really to do with supply and demand or wars intervening or immigration or emigration or anything like that, that it was really a product of, you know, big companies.
4: That's right. Or these kind of ideological movements. Conversely, The times where you see people consume less meat is oftentimes imposed by hardship. And it's not a choice. It's like Great Depression comes, meat consumption declines, but that's understandable. It's like nothing surprising. It's not a wholehearted, full-frooted embrace of vegetarianism.
1: Yeah. And now Americans eat 264 pounds per person per year on average. That's an all-time high I mean, I'm not quite sure what to say about that. Does health go along with this? Is this a healthier America or a less healthy America because of that?
4: You know, like meat consumption, putting aside the ethical considerations that many people understandably have, it's one thing if you get to have access to protein and meat and your alternative is no protein, right? Mm -hmm. You know, That's kind of like the 1700s. And in that case, the Americans are better off. But at this point, you'd be hard-pressed to argue that consuming 264 pounds of meat per person per year is inherently a healthy thing, It's especially given the alternatives, meat substitutes and otherwise.
1: And, I mean, this includes all sorts of meats, even meats that people eat from takeouts? Correct. Fish yes. managed to avoid this whole cyclical yes. effect?
4: And I think fish is harder to replicate, I gather, both in consistency and, and flavor. Although you do see, you know, artificial crab stick, for example, but that itself is actually made from some fish products. So it's mm. not a purely synthetic creation.
1: That's Bloomberg Opinion and the University of Georgia's Stephen Mim. Well, if you're not among the Dry January crew out there, you've got to listen to this next interview. Justin Fox had a look at the data and found people are spending more on alcohol, even post-pandemic. So Justin, you wrote a very consoling recent column. Not consoling in the sense that it told us that the pandemic drinking binge just kept on going after the pandemic was ostensibly over, but very consoling for those of us who've had a couple of drinks in the last week or two. (laughs) Tell us, what are the data saying?
5: Well, I wrote, I guess, a year and a half or so ago about how much alcohol sales and seemingly consumption increased over the course of the pandemic. And I just sort of checked in again with the highest frequency data we can look at, which is just the consumer spending that the Bureau of Economic Analysis puts out. They actually give you in some detail how much is spent on beer, wine, and liquor at stores, Mm. and then how much is spent in general on drinks at bars and restaurants. And it's just kept going up, even in inflation-adjusted terms. And a little bit of that is maybe people are buying fancier stuff. But I think it's mostly overall Americans are drinking more.
1: How much do we know about the internals of those data in the sense that I feel like many of the large companies put out things like X zero or X double O. I don't want to give any brand names here, but are some of these zero alcohol drinks considered alcohol in this? No, metric? they don't. They
5: don't show. They shouldn't show up in any of this data. It is possible to spend a lot of money on um, non-alcoholic liquor, and I now do that weirdly enough. Yeah. But that should just show up as a non-alcoholic beverage, right? Well, there's
1: been an explosion of those kinds yeah. of products within the brands,
5: right? And there's been definitely this increase in demand for I forget the term that the distilled spirits. Council uses hyper, super duper premium spirits. And and there's a lot more growth in the high end sales than in the low end sales. So in terms of the actual volume of, at least with liquor being consumed and probably with beer and wine too, it's not completely reflected by those increases in sales. Some of that is just people paying more money, not Drinking more volume. But there there are lots of signs that there's more problematic drinking going on, the main one being a big increase in alcohol-related deaths.
1: What's going on with alcohol-related deaths?
5: Alcohol consumption in the U.S. peaked in the 1970s and had been on this long decline, partly because of less beer consumption but also less liquor consumption. Wine consumption kept going up, but not radically sometime in the last couple of decades, spirits consumption started rising again. And it's pretty, you know, the whole cocktail boom, there's been this explosion in the number of small distilleries all over the US. And it's kind of cool in general, but it means that per capita alcohol consumption has been rising now for more than a decade. And then it seems to have just taken a leap a couple of months into the pandemic. Yeah. I guess I had thought that would have fallen back, but it hasn't really. Another interesting thing is this increased drinking is not young people. Oh. For like the 18 to 24 set, I think they're probably drinking less. But it's middle-aged and older are the ones drinking more.
1: Well, and also legalization of weed and having weed dispensaries. New York City just had its first one open. Yeah, sort of
5: pushed it aside for a certain generation. I think also in the survey data, it's mostly women who are drinking more, mm. with men maybe more flat. Interesting. Sorta.
1: Alcohol-related deaths, do we know how they're happening? I mean, this is very grim and gruesome, but, you know, you're good at looking at gruesome data.
5: Right. I, I mean, I the CDC has this database, and you can just click alcohol-induced deaths. But it's some mix of cirrhosis of the liver. And, I mean, what the CDC says is that that's actually only a portion of deaths that are somehow related to alcohol those are ones where it's basically you can very directly lay it down to alcohol use there are lots of others in terms of accidents violence that are probably alcohol related but don't show up Bloomberg opinions Justin Fox
1: That does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. Don't forget we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. And as always, do send us your thoughts. Email me at vquinn at bloomberg.net. We love to get your opinions and suggestions. We're produced by Eric Mollo. I'm Vonnie Quinn.